0: Good morning, Riverview. It's good to be with you today. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here. And in my pastoral role, one of my primary ministries is that I serve and lead over at our Westside venue. So while I'm here at the Holt venue with you today, it's great to be here. I often don't get to see many of you, but it's great to be able to worship and sing and open the Word of God with you today. Last week, Uh, a group of 33 people from Riverview uh, left for Israel. And we spent time in our service praying for them. They are having a fantastic time over there. And and we got this message from Pastor James just a couple of days ago, along with a picture that four people from Riverview were baptized in the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, very cool. So you can clap for that. Uh, That's fantastic. Uh, Thank you for praying for this group of people. Please continue to do so. Uh, please just continue praying for them as they finish their trip this week. They've got a few more days there and then they have the long trip back uh, to the States in a few days. So thank you for praying for them. Uh, over the past month or so here at Riv, we have been walking through the New Testament letter of Colossians. And this was a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Colossae. And his goal with his letter was really to encourage these Colossian Christians in their faith and just to help them know Jesus more, to walk in him more strongly. Now, last week, we actually saw Paul kind of pull back the curtain on his life and on his ministry. While most of the letter so far of chapter one had been about the Colossians and about what God was doing in them, Paul actually turned the spotlight around to himself to write a little bit about what God was doing in his life and in his ministry. And he wrote about how his ministry was marked by some very significant suffering and how he was suffering for them and how he was working hard. This is the first and last verse we looked at last week. This is Colossians 1, verse 24 and 29. Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church, And then verse 29, I labor for this, striving with, with his strength that works powerfully in me. You see, Paul, he saw his suffering as a powerful gospel witness, not only to the church, but also to the world around him. And that is why, that's one of the reasons he was really able to rejoice in them, because there was purpose. It was a way that he identified with Christ in his sufferings. And what Paul was working toward when he says what he was laboring for in verse 29 was that the Colossians would grow up, that they would become mature followers of Jesus, like a good mom or dad who who wants their kids to grow up and eventually leave their house, hopefully, Uh, right? Paul, he wanted the same kind of thing for the Colossians, that they would grow up spiritually, that their trajectory would continue to point upward toward Jesus, as they grew in their faith. This morning, we're gonna continue on in a similar vein to where we were last week. This is kind of the second half of Paul's brief stint of talking about his ministry. The spotlight's still on him a little bit, but he's gonna use another word to describe what he was walking through. And it's not suffering and it's not labor, but the word he's gonna share is struggle. In chapter two of verse one, the first verse, he says, for I want you to know how greatly I am struggling. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go and open up to chapter two of Colossians. We're just gonna camp out here. We're in three verses this morning. We're not really flipping around very much. So feel free, if you have a Bible, keep it open to Colossians chapter two. We're just gonna plumb the depths of these three verses, okay? So chapter two, verse one, Paul writes this, "'For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, "'for those in Laodicea, "'and for all who have not seen me in person.'" So the word struggle isn't unique to the Bible. It's not unique to Christianity. It's a word we use often, right? And just to struggle means it is to strive to achieve something in the face of difficulty. And this happens daily, right, for us in our lives. This could happen in our work. Maybe you face deadlines and and you need to accomplish the work, but it just kind of increases as you're doing other work. And it's just a struggle to get everything done. Maybe you experience struggle in your family. You're navigating difficult relationships or or difficult times, or maybe you're just figuring out how to be in three places at once. Because as a parent, as your kids grow up, you're no longer a parent. You're an Uber driver, right? You're just taking them everywhere they need to go, right? But, But maybe even just being here today in a service, attending, was a struggle for you either just by yourself or with your crew of people. Like I can actually spot sometimes when this happens for people, there's this double sigh that happens as they sit down, the chair and their mouth make the noise like, you know, they're just like, we made it. We're here in church. Like the kids couldn't keep us away. I I didn't sleep in. It was a struggle, but we made it, right? See, we struggle all the time. We experience this in and out of our spiritual lives. But the, it's interesting, the Greek word that Paul uses here in Colossians is the word agon. And, and that's actually where we get the English word agony from. Isn't that interesting? We actually see that word four other times in the New Testament. Two times it's, it's translated as struggle as it is here in Colossians, once in Philippians, but other times it's a different word. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is writing to Timothy, this, this guy that he had reached with the gospel who was pastoring a church in Ephesus, and he, he encourages him to fight the good fight of faith. The time he says fight there twice, it is the word agon, or struggle. And then we also see it in Hebrews, where the, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging Christians in their walk, and he, and he tells them to let us run the race. And the word race is the same as struggle, it's agon. You know, other translations of of this verse in Colossians 2, they, they phrase it differently. The new NIV says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. And then the new living translation, Paul writes, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you. Here, we see that along with suffering and working hard, Paul is, he's struggling towards something meaningful. He's striving to achieve something amidst difficulty. But the question is, who is he actually struggling for? Because remember, he, this is a prison epistle. He's like in jail as he's writing this. So who is he struggling for here? Well, we actually see it in the verse. It tells us, it says, for I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. That's the Colossians. But then for those in Laodicea and for all who haven't seen me in person. As Paul looks at his struggle, three different groups of people come to mind. And one of them is the Colossians. That's who he wrote the letter to, right? That makes sense. But then he says, for those in Laodicea. Well, where's that? Laodicea was a city about 10 miles west of Colossae. So if you were living back then, it was about a few hours walk uh, to this city. And later in chapter four, we see this name of a guy named Epaphras and we've seen him already. He was one of Paul's coworkers in ministry, but he was really faithful in bringing the gospel to Colossae and to Laodicea and sharing the gospel with them and serving the Christians there. And what's interesting about Laodicea is they show up again in the Bible about 30 years later in the book of Revelation. The church there is one of the churches, if you're familiar with Revelation, the, the beginning of it, there is these rebukes that Jesus gives to the churches. And there is, a, there is a rebuke 30 years later for the church in Laodicea. I'm gonna let you go find that on your own, Revelation chapter three, if you wanna read that. But Paul is struggling for these people. But then it also says he is struggling for all who haven't seen him in person. Now that seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, how is that possible? How can Paul struggle for those that he's never met and for those he's probably never going to meet? See, for us, when we talk of struggle, it's often something right in front of us, isn't it? It's a situation we need to deal with, or it's a person we're caring for, or it's a problem that needs to be solved. But that's actually not what Paul's getting at here. He is struggling for people, for faces he's never gonna see. He is struggling for names of people that he'll never hear or know. But what's so interesting about this verse is I think it actually unlocks something for us, like a key part of our mission as followers of Jesus that we often forget, and it's that we can struggle for people even when we're not with them. We can and we should struggle and labor and contend for people's spiritual lives even when we are not physically with them. Now we need to be careful though not to take what I just said to the two extremes that we, that we could here, right? One of those extremes is that you always need to be with people to do spiritual work. That if you're not physically there, your prayers or anything else, they, they just don't matter, which we see Paul is going against that here because he's struggling for people that he's not with, right? But the other extreme is that we just never need to be present with people, right? Because the work is spiritual, our physical presence just doesn't matter, So we don't have to go and serve people. We don't have to take the gospel to other people. It's all spiritual work, right? We can just kind of lay low. We shouldn't land in either of those two extremes. We should land somewhere in the middle that we are meant to go where people are. God cares about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we live together in community. We read scripture together. We pray together. We serve together. Those are all great things. But here's the thing, we can struggle and contend and agonize for people's spiritual lives even when we're not with them. And how Paul did this, it was in prayer. If you look at the other letters he wrote, you'll just see him say, I can't stop praying for you. Every day when I pray for you, I'm praying for this. And then it's like 50 different things, right? See, this is why as Christians, we Pray. We spend time praying for church planters that we may never meet, churches we may never attend. We pray for church communities around the world. We pray for leaders and, and pastors in, in places that are hostile to the gospel. But even in those, like those faraway places, we also, we pray for children who have left our home, that they would follow Jesus in college or as an adult. If you're a grandparent, you pray for your grandson or your granddaughter to know Christ. Here, we see this outward nature of our lives as Christians, right? I mean, this is how people come to know Jesus. This is our mission. You may reach someone with the gospel, right? And they choose to follow Jesus. But then when that person becomes a believer, guess what they do? They go and reach someone else with the gospel. And in this outward movement, there is people that may follow Jesus that you may never know. You may never see their face, You may never know their name, but it was through your faithfulness in sharing the gospel with one who then shared the gospel with them. See, it's gospel multiplication. And and we see that here when Paul is talking about who he's struggling for, the people he reached for Christ, they reached those communities. The Colossians, for those in Laodicea, for all who hadn't met him. But But what was the core of his struggle? What is it that he wanted? What was Paul's goal? Well, he says it in the next verse, verse two. He says, I want, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What Paul wanted more than anything it had to do with their hearts. Now, when we see that word heart in the Bible, we, we need to be careful not to take our kind of narrow cultural view of heart, meaning just like our emotions, right? Or feeling loved, right? The word heart in the Bible, it's just so much more robust than that. And we actually see the word heart show up a thousand, over a thousand times in the Bible. It's more than our emotions. It's often thought of as the center of our being, our personality, our thoughts, our decisions, the the deepest part of who we are. And that's why in Proverbs 4.23, this is a really popular proverb. It tells us that we should guard our heart above all else for it is the source of life. Paul wants the Colossians, for those in Laodicea, for those who had not met him yet, to experience something as Christ followers at the core of who they were. Well, what is it? It's that their hearts would be encouraged and joined together in love. This shouldn't surprise us. I mean, if you, if you read Paul's letters, most of them are just encouragement fire hose. <laughs> I mean, over and over again, all he does is like, this is true of you, and this is true of you, and how cool is it that that's true of you? Like, he's just encouraging over and over, and that's what he's done so far about their faith in Jesus. Jesus about their love for the saints, about how the gospel's taking root where they live and in other places. Like Paul is just this encouragement master. But he also says something unique here, that he wants their hearts to be joined together in love. Other translations uh, say this differently. They say knit together in love, which is an interesting picture, right? Hearts being knit together. When I read those verses, my mind uh, they went to an experience we had a few months ago with our youngest son who needed stitches. Yeah, when his chin needed to be joined back together. Um, he was a trooper though. I mean, he's five years old. And after the initial tears, he was just super tough about it. Like in the urgent care, he's just sitting there like this, like just ready to go, you know, holding this pad on his face. And um, he was just this fierce look of determination. me, not so much. Uh, my, my wife Danielle is the stronger person in our marriage in this, and that was seen as I left the doctor's office because I got squeamish. I am not watching stitches happen. No, thank you. Um, but but see, this came to mind of just it's just this picture, right, of, of something being knit together, being as it should, as, as being restored to what it should be. And what Paul's getting at here is he's not talking about stitches and cuts or anything like that, but he's talking about people being knit together, a deep relational unity for Christians, for those he was writing to. See, unity, being joined together in love, peace with one another, that is a distinguishing mark of a church community. Relational harmony, it is fruit of the gospel taking root in a group of people. Because when people experience the vertical love of Christ, that cannot help but spill over into relational and horizontal love for other people. We see this all throughout the Bible. I mean, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples together and he told them, guys, everyone that you meet, they will know that you follow me by one quality of your group. Do you remember what it was? Was it their knowledge? Was it their ability to recall scripture? Was it their ability to win arguments? No. Look at what he said. John 13, verse 34 and 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus told his disciples, guys, it's by your love for one another. That's how the world will know you follow me. There is an outward impact on the world that is tangibly seen when Christians are committed to unity and an inward love for one another. When church communities are united around the gospel instead of infighting, when they love and they serve one another, when they leave this place and reach the lost. See, we see how important this is in just the next two words Paul says in the verse. He says that he wants their hearts to be encouraged and joined together and love so that. Do you see what he's doing? He's sharing how their unity with one another is gonna yield even more grace in the world. It's gonna produce even more goodness. So that, and it's this, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Last week, we saw Paul introduce this idea of the mystery, right, in verse 26, how it was hidden for ages and for generations that's now revealed to the saints. Well, that mystery that's been revealed, it's it's the gospel. It's that Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, that God sent Jesus into the world to atone for sin and to reconcile lost people to himself. So many clues throughout the Old Testament. It was like this treasure map, right? They they pointed to this truth, a Messiah is coming. And that mystery that was once hidden was now revealed in Jesus because he was that Messiah. He was the only one who could restore humanity's broken relationship with God. But see, Paul's desire, it wasn't only that they would have some knowledge of this, like enough knowledge to be able to have a conversation about. Look, look at what he says. He wanted them to have all the riches of complete understanding. Have you ever spoken with someone who's just like an expert on a particular topic who seems to have the riches of complete understanding of like the Detroit Lions <laughs> or like a historical event or a specific trader skill or Pokemon cards. That's my kids right now. Um, but, but see, whatever it is, the person you're talking to, they just know everything about it. Do you ever notice how they talk about it with you? Their eyes get big. They're excited. They start talking faster, right? Because they don't only want you to know what they know. They want you to love what they love in their knowledge, as it's grown, they've gone from being an expert to an ambassador. They've gone from, oh my gosh, do you have five hours to talk about the draft of the Detroit Lions? Because I'll tell you, right? <laughs> and so, and then they just paint you this picture of like, how can you not love the Detroit Lions like I do now? And, and it's, it's, I imagine Paul writing these words like that as a man striving, to know Jesus, to have the riches of complete understanding and knowledge himself. He so desperately wants it for other people because that's what he's striving for. See, for Paul, nothing compared to knowing Christ. Nothing. I mean, we see evidence of this in other letters that he wrote. Before Paul became a Christian, he had quite a religious resume, uh, one that a lot of people could brag about. (laughs) It was something that he took a lot of confidence in before God saved him. But but he writes about it. Look at how he compares his old religious resume to his current life in jail, following Jesus. It's Philippians chapter three, starting in verse four. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh or confidence in their life and in their efforts and things, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. What Paul is doing here, he's like, hey, in all those categories, no one was better than me. I was it. I was the standard. But then look at what he says. But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul wanted everyone, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, those he hadn't met, to know the surpassing value of Jesus Christ that they would have the riches of complete understanding about that. See, because if that was true of them, they would then have greater understanding about everything else they would experience in life. And we see Paul say this in the very next verse. Look at what he says about this knowledge and this experience of walking and knowing Jesus. It's Colossians 2, verse three. He says, in him or in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom wisdom. And knowledge. You know, as I see that word treasure, I'm reminded of my love for heist movies. Um, I love a movie where some priceless treasure is taken through some genius and always completely impossible plan that works. Um, now, that being said, I'm gonna save you some email, okay? Like, I don't ever watch these movies thinking, I would really like to do that. Or like, I miss my calling, I'm gonna go steal some art. You know, like, no, like that's not, these are purely for entertainment, okay? But what I find fascinating about these movies, man, is just the obsession that the characters have with getting that treasure. Whether it's money or historical documents or a map to somewhere else, like there's this, this fanatical zeal that people have with getting it, like so much so that they were willing to spend the rest of their lives in jail for it. They're like, yep, it's worth it. And then for 90 minutes, right? They come up with the perfect plan and the perfect plot and they avoid the authorities and they usually get what they want. And then at the end, they celebrate together as they reflect on the million crimes they just committed that they will never be brought to justice for. That is the plot of every heist movie, uh, by the way. I still watch them though. Um, but see, no, the best part of the movie though, it's when they're in the vault. When they open it up and they look, they're like, "That's it. This is what it's all for. This is what I wanted." See that—that came to mind for me as I read this verse because it's just like, "Jesus is the treasure." That's why you can just see like Paul gushing in this verse. It's like I'm in jail doesn't matter. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like it's, it's not so that we get something else, everybody. It's Christ. That is the treasure. That is what we get, Christ in us. That's actually what Paul's going to go on to say. You are hidden in him. See, in just these few words, Paul, what he's doing is he's just reminding us of that that we have access to the God of the universe, the way, the truth, the life, the source of wisdom and knowledge. And those two things, they actually go together. Wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is is having necessary facts or information about something, right? We, We know that. But then wisdom, that's knowing how to live out that knowledge and apply that knowledge to your life in a good and godly way. See, a growing trust and knowledge of Jesus, it's gonna yield greater knowledge and wisdom about everything else, about yourself, about the world, about how our lives should reflect God. If you wanna learn more about wisdom and knowledge and this kind of our pursuit of that, Proverbs is, is a great place to go. And Proverbs chapter two, it's, it's really cool, this intersection we see of insight and wisdom and knowledge. Like look at what Solomon writes. This is uh, Proverbs chapter two, verses one through eight. He writes, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You'll discover the knowledge of God for the Lord gives wisdom From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He is a shield for those who live with integrity so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his faithful followers. See, by growing in our love and understanding of who Christ is, we grow in our understanding of everything else. It is through him that we actually see everything else. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See, our faith in Christ helps us. It grow toward loving God and, and living like Christ did. But not only does it do those things, it also helps us identify the things that God doesn't love and the ways Jesus didn't live things that are false or wrong, like maybe false ideologies or teachings that many of us are often tempted to believe, that that we know friends and family may believe, or that Christians can often fall into believing instead of what the word says. Next week, Paul's gonna warn the Colossians of this very thing. In the next verses, he's gonna say, do not be deceived or do not be taken captive by other philosophy rather than Christ." but that's next week. But as we reflect on these verses, these three verses, Paul wanted the Colossians to know how greatly he was struggling for them, how he was contending for their faith, that his desire for them was to be united together and how their unity would lead to greater love and understanding of Jesus himself. See, I think we need to save that word struggle. We need to redeem it. Because I think in our, just in our life, it's such a negative word. Because we'd rather things not be difficult. I mean, that popular meme, the struggle is real, right? I mean, like we just kind of, it's just kind of an excuse to complain about things sometimes. Like life is hard. But see, in these verses, I don't get a sense that Paul is like, I wish I wasn't struggling. It doesn't sound like that at all. Because to struggle means to achieve something in the face of difficulty, That is the Christian life, my friends. To struggle sometimes. We struggle toward the goal of knowing Christ ourselves and we contend for others to know Christ through hearing the gospel. See, life as a follower of Jesus, it is a worthwhile struggle. It's a source of incredible joy, but as we've seen over the last two weeks, it is not without suffering. It's not without labor and challenge. So, let's think about ourselves here. How about you? Are you in the struggle? Are you contending? Are you striving to know Christ yourself? Earlier, I shared how Paul used that word agon uh, as, as, a, as, as for a struggle. There, it's where we get the word agony, and the other two times it's used. It's used to encourage Christians in their own walks with the Lord. I mean, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring a church in Ephesus, a guy that he had reached with the gospel, who had gone and become a pastor and leader in this church in Ephesus. And, and this is what he wrote to encourage him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from these things. And the these things are sins that were really prevalent in his church and in Ephesus. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Struggle the good struggle of faith. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer writes this Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Do you see the words? Fight, run, struggle, contend. See, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're running. I don't know if maybe you haven't started running because you may be here and you're not a Christian. You're like, you know, I don't really know what it means to be a Christian. I don't, I'm just kind of here. And if that's you, I am, I'm very happy that you're here. But to be a Christian means that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've turned from your sin and you've accepted the free gift of forgiveness and salvation in what he has done for you through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That he has become the object of your hope. To follow Jesus means he is the treasure. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York. And on Friday of this last week, he passed away after a multi-year battle with pancreatic cancer. Um, His life and ministry have been very influential in my own life, just his books and sermons. And um, in his last days, his his family had said he could not wait to be with Jesus. And uh, as the struggle and suffering, suffering he experienced that, it didn't lead him away from God, but closer to him. And what I loved about his ministry was he had such a powerful way of taking profound and deep truths of our faith and making them really sticky, making them easy to understand. He was often described as the C.S. Lewis of our time. Um, And I love this quote that I've heard him say about the gospel, but I just wanted to share it this morning. He wrote, the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. See, choosing to follow Christ, it's it's believing that truth, that you need him, that you can't do it on your own, that that you're more sinful and flawed than you wanna believe, yet, it's a beautiful word, yet, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. God loved us enough to send us a rescuer in Jesus. Choose to follow him today. Maybe you're here and you have done that. You are a Christian, you're you're running the race. Maybe you just started, you got the water bottles, you're ready, you're good. (laughs) Maybe you've been running for a long time and you're like, this is hard. This is a struggle. But wherever you are today in your walk with the Lord, just know that you are not running alone. That we do so alongside one another. Remember those verses, we are being knit together in love. As we grow in our faith and understanding of Jesus life as a Christian, it is a worthwhile struggle. It's a life of joy in meaning and peace of knowing that we are known by God. We're loved by him. It's a life where we not only grow into the likeness of Jesus ourselves, but we do so as we help others do the same. And while that can often be a struggle, it is one that is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do First, just wanna thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us your words. Lord, you've spoken to us and you've given it to us in a way that we, we have it with us at all times. We can, we can know who you are. We can know what you think. We can figure out what you love as we open your word. And God, I thank you that As we ask for wisdom, that you give it to us. God, I thank you that we will never exhaust the riches of complete understanding of Jesus. There's always more we can know. But God, I just, I think about Paul and I think about his struggle for those that he had never even met before, people he had never, he would probably never meet. And what he wanted for them was for Jesus to be their treasure. For Jesus to be all that they wanted. To be seen as glorious. God, that is my hope for our church family. That we would just remember, God, that Christ is it. In him, we have all that we need. Thank you for sending us the perfect Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.